Welcome to Dr. Cheryl's Pod Couch, where we talk about all things mental health. Today, I am thrilled to have Tiffany Dufu on, who is the author of the book, Drop the Ball, and the founder of The Crew, a peer coaching platform for women. Tiffany says that she is on the planet to advance women and girls. She was named as one of 19 women who are leading the way in the Huffington Post amongst luminaries such as Hillary Clinton and Diane Sawyer. She is a consultant to Fortune 500 companies, a sought after speaker on women's leadership, and has presented at Fortune's most powerful women's summit, Makers and TEDx Women. So there's so many other things I could say about you, but I am so thrilled you're here to talk to me today. How are you, Tiffany? I'm amazing. I'm overwhelmed, but blessed. Oh, that's such a good answer. That's such a good <laughs> answer, right? Overwhelmed, but blessed. Um, you have so much going on, but I want to take my listeners to where maybe the world at large sort of met you, which was through your book, Drop the Ball. And what that's what I think, at least. Um, so I'd love to know your story around that and um, how you got clarity to even write the book and why you were on the planet and how, how this kind of manifested this book. Yes, absolutely. So um, you already said the most important thing about me, which is that my life's work is advancing women and girls. I was on the launch team for Lean In. I was a big big proponent of Lean In Circles. I did a lot of public speaking that year. That book was launched in 2013. And one of the observations that I made when I was just kind of on the speaking circuit, talking usually to large groups of women at conferences and events, was that when I would talk for 30, 40 minutes about women's leadership, and at that time, I was largely talking about what I feel are collective, you know, solutions to women's leadership. So we need equal pay for equal work. We need affordable child care for working families. We need to make sure that our public policies are supporting women in the workplace. We need to make sure that we have corporations that have cultures where everyone can bring their full selves to the table. This is the kind of stuff that I would talk about for 30 or 40 minutes. But whenever I would stop talking, Cheryl, and I would open up the group for some kind of Q&A, I noticed that the first set of questions that I would always get were personal questions that to me had nothing to do with what I had just spoken about for 30 or 45 minutes. And usually it went something like, Tiffany, my question is really about the fact that you know, you're here I think you mentioned that your husband's in Dubai right now. Your kids are in school. They're school-age kids. You live in Harlem. You're going to be in Baltimore tomorrow. I like your dress. You seem healthy and happy. And they read your bio. It seemed very impressive. You look like you might even have time to like go to the gym. And I'm just sitting here wondering, like, how is she doing all of this? Um, what is this woman on? Like, what is she eating? What is she drinking? And I'm just wondering how you basically manage it all. That was the number one question. I would look around at the sea of women and most of them would be kind of clapping their hands thinking, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I don't know what she's been talking about for 40 minutes. I just want to know, like, how does she do it? And if you're a woman in any kind of position of leadership, you know this, Cheryl, it's like the most popular question that you get. 
I used to think that this was a superficial question, that it was a question about my personal business that I just didn't feel like anybody need to know, um, that it was a question that only women got because we are a sexist world and men never get this question. But, you know, one day I had what I call a Tiffany's epiphany um, when I kind of stepped back from the podium. And it was really this voice that said, Tiffany, women are not asking you over and over why you're able to do what you're doing and how to manage it all because they care about the details of your personal life. They're asking you this because they're sitting there in that seat and they're wondering, how am I going to be able to manage it all? And if your life's work really is advancing women and girls, you owe women a better answer to the question than the kind of one-liner joke that you come up with to move people on to what you think is, you know, more important. So that's where, you know, that really came from was me wanting to answer that specific question. I got the same question whenever I was having one-on-one -on -one conversations with women. I would say yes to pretty much every woman that reached out to me. And so I had a lot of those. And the number one question was, so how do you manage it all? I, I've learned about you. So I decided that the best way to answer that question was a book for a few different reasons. One was I didn't think women would believe me if I just told them the answer. I felt that I would need to take women on a psychological journey to figure out how to manage it all because I had taken myself on a psychological journey. It took me three years to figure out what were the blockers? Why couldn't I manage it all? What was holding me back? And I just thought, let me take them on this journey. I was an English major. I love books. I'm obsessed with books. I read a lot of them. Your book is amazing, by the way. Oh, <laughs> so thank you. I, I just thought this is probably the best medium for me to communicate what's required in order for us to create lives that we're passionate about. It's not a keynote. It's not a talk. Uh, and so because I'm here to do what women need me to do, I embarked on the journey of what was required in order to be an author, which was brand new for me. And I had to learn a whole other industry, as you know. Yes, definitely. And so I have read Drop the Ball, love this book. I think it can really be life-changing for people. And I'm curious though, now if you're sitting up there and you get asked this question again, anywhere, whether you're on stage or one-on-one, or -on -one, Besides saying, well, I wrote a whole book on how I do it all. Do you have mm -hmm. a three-liner, a five-liner? How do you answer that question today? Yeah. So, you know, right now, if somebody says, how do you do all of this? Like I saw that you are on like three nonprofit boards and you're an entrepreneur, you have a company, you're like speaking all the time. You have two kids. You seem to have a husband. I'm sure you have other members of your family. I don't know if you have a dog, but I just, I'm trying to wonder how, how to figure this all out. I do share, I do say I'm a drop the baller. Um, and what that means for me is that I'm able to accomplish a lot because I don't do nearly as much as you think that I probably do. And it was a really tough journey. I did write a book about it. But in short, I basically figured out how to get clear about what's most important to me in life as opposed to what everybody else thinks is important. And I'm more than happy to talk to you about how you can do that, too. I got really clear about what my highest and best use is to achieve what matters most to me instead of me just constantly feeling pressure to say yes to every request or every everybody else's need and what comes over the fence. So kind of creating a filter for myself 
so I would know on a day-to-day basis, is this in alignment with what matters most? And then the third thing that I did was I figured out how to meaningfully engage other people in my life in a way that I never had before, because for the most part, I kind of felt like I was supposed to be taking care of all of these people. Um, And I learned how to change the dynamics of my relationship. And the book is largely about how I did that with my husband, uh, Kojo, um, and how I got him off the couch and and helping me out. (laughs) Off the blue (laughs) couch. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that's really it. That's what I share. Yeah, I think that's a really... I think that's a great answer. And a lot of times I talk to people about learning how, and for me, I still feel in process, but learning how to say no and learning how to say yes and feel good about both of those decisions. And I think that that's a real process for people. It's been a process for me. And so do you feel like learning how to say no is part of your process? Yes, I would say it's a practice. Mm-hmm. Um, saying no is a practice like yoga. Think of it's muscles that need to be pulled and need to be stretched. I have a four-step process for, staying, for saying no. Um, I always start with gratitude. So if you get an email from me that starts by saying, thank you for thinking of me, I'm probably about to tell you no. <laughs> so I start, thank you, thank you for thinking of me. And then I say something about how I'm spending my time right now. So I say right now I'm knee deep launching another round of membership members for the crew, or, you know, I'm knee deep working on my podcast or I mean, whatever it is for you. Then the third step is to unequivocally, unapologetically say no. And I say, I'm, I'm, I won't, I won't be there. I'm unable to be there. And I don't give any reason other than that. And I don't apologize for it. And then the fourth step is to say thank you again. Um, but I really appreciate you thinking of me. So and it, so it just goes, thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm really knee deep launching a round of another crew members um, for the crew. It's just so important to me. I'm unable to be there, but I really appreciate that you thought of me. Yeah, I mean, you make that sound very simple, right? Mm-hmm. And so I can see how it just takes practice. And also, you know, let's say for some women that might be listening, they might feel like, well, these conversations have to happen in person, right? So I'm at school doing a drop off and somebody grabs me and says, hey, want to chair the auction committee with me? And in that Mm -hmm. moment, so many women say, I just, I couldn't say no. They asked me face to face. I say the same exact thing. I say the same, that happened this morning. Today was the first day of school. There's a diversity committee at the school. They sent a couple emails. I haven't responded. Someone grabbed me and they said, Hey, Tiffany, I know it's the first day, but we have a diversity committee. I really have wanted you on it. But I got that this morning at school drop off. And I said, thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm <laughs> right deep in. Yeah. I'm so knee deep getting my company off the ground. I don't know if you heard, but I launched a new company called the crew. I'm unable to participate in that committee, but I really appreciate you thinking of me. And unapologetically, you, you walked away. Yeah. No, no apologies. You would be surprised. The reason why it's so important that women do this is because you would be surprised at the number of people whose response to that is we can do that. Yes. Right. You would be surprised at the number of people who are like, oh, my God, can you teach me how to do that? Because I need to do that. Yes. <laughs> so I think 
what's important is that we have to model what it means to let go. We have to model what it means to prioritize what matters most to us. And until we start modeling it and teaching it and showing it and demonstrating it, then we'll just have a bunch of women generation after generation who don't know how to say no. Yeah. And can't say no. And what was amazing for me this moment about it, this morning about it, was my 10-year-old daughter was standing right next to me. She was standing right next to me, Cheryl. Yeah. And she heard me say it. That And that was awesome. And that's what I w- want to jump in and say. I had a moment. I have been in practice. I'm probably not nearly... Um, where you are yet, but I'm definitely getting there, probably halfway from where I was. And um, and I will say we talk about this a lot in, in my crew, um, but my daughter this summer got asked to do something. And I said, hey, I just thought I'd let you know you were asked to join, you know, I think it was like this kid's book club, reading club. And she looked at me as confident as could be. She's 11 years old. And she said, mommy, I have school and cross country and gymnastics. If I were to do that, that would just be way too much. And I would have no time off. So I'm going to need to say no. I was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) So I know I I was like, yes. And I can't take all the credit for that. I know I can't, but there's something she's getting. And there was something just within her. And the way she said it was so calm and confident and unapologetic or she didn't look insecure and she didn't actually even look to me. She didn't say, so do you think so? Do you think it's too much? That's what I would have sort of expected. So I agree with you. That's that. I was so excited to say that, that modeling all sorts of boundaries, because ultimately in my world, we would say how to form and establish and maintain boundary setting um, is so important. And, And you're right. I've never thought of it as a muscle, nor have I ever thought of it as sort of a four step process. But I can I feel like I can do this. And if I can do this, other women can do this, too. So thanks for sharing that. So we have alluded so far on this conversation, in this conversation about the crew, something that you founded and I'm a member of, and I would love for you to share with people who don't know about it, what it is and what you're trying to do with it. Yes. So thank you for being a member of the crew, Cheryl, and for saying yes um, to what really was an experiment last year. I mentioned that I connect with a lot of women. And basically what happens is that women read my book or maybe they hear me speak. They reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter or, you know, whatever platform and they say, can we connect? And I usually say yes. Um, I have like a LinkedIn issue where sometimes I have to say no on LinkedIn, but for the most part, I try to say yes. One of the observations that I've made over the years in listening to hundreds of women's stories. So if you can imagine, if you meet with six or seven women a week, I've been doing this since 2012. It's like over a thousand women I've connected with. If you listen carefully to women, one of the observations is that even though we have a lot of people around us, we have our family, our friends, coworkers, we largely perceive our personal and professional journey as if it's a solo endeavor, not a team sport. In other words, a woman is much more likely to ask herself if she has a problem, how am I going to solve this problem? As opposed to who's going to help me solve this problem? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I've been evangelizing this idea of a crew. 
for probably about three years. I personally have a crew, a group of women who hold me accountable and to my own ambition, helping me to create a plan and figuring things out, but mostly just holding my feet to the fire for what I said I was going to do. And I thought more women should benefit from this. And so I had a little pep talk that I would give to every woman that I met with at the end of the conversation, because no matter what her problem was, as far as I was concerned, her answer was, you need a crew. But last January, so this was January of 2018, I was meeting with a woman who became visibly frustrated when I was giving the pep talk. And I had to stop and say, is everything okay? And she said, well, no, she says, everything's not okay. She says, I'm listening to you. And I understand that if I had a crew like you have, that I could move my life forward. But honestly, Tiffany, by the time I go to enough cocktail parties and conferences and events, then introduce myself to a bunch of strangers, collect all those business cards, then schedule a bunch of coffees, teas, lunches with all of these people to listen to their stories. By the way, I had to take time off of my job to meet you here in New York at the wing at 10 a.m., and then somehow figure out which 10 or 12 of us are conducive to like having this amazing group where we meet quarterly and put forth our ambitions together. Tiffany, I have a full-time job. I have three kids. I have a mom with a diagnosis. I have a dog. I, I don't, what you're asking is just too much. I don't have the bandwidth to find my crew. So if that's all you have for me, then this is just not helpful. It just hasn't been helpful. And as you can imagine, <laughs> she like hit me to my core. All I could do was apologize profusely, give her a big hug. And I made her a promise. I said, I'm so sorry. I will help you find your crew. I'll help you find your crew. And I realized in that moment, I don't know if you've ever had one of those. It's like another Tiffany's epiphany for me. Gosh, if your life's work really is advancing women and girls, once again, you need to stop preaching to women about how they need to find a crew and you need to just find the damn crew for them. Mm -hmm. Cause you're the one talking to all these women. You're the one who can, who knows a thousand of them at least that you've sat down with. So why don't you just collect enough information from her? Don't make her do too much work. Just have her sit down for a few minutes, give you some information about herself so that you can match her. If eHarmony can do it for couples, like why can't you just do it for groups of women? It's it. It's simple. Just do it. And that's how we launched the crew. That's wow. how the crew was born. Does that woman know that she was the impetus for making you do this? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. So I, I want to ask you, to me is maybe a tough question, and I'm really curious what you're going to say. So um, first, let me say from my perspective, since I am an inaugural year crew member, um, it has been, I have been in another crew type situation. I had been seven years prior, probably a total of nine years in, in different, we call them forums. And this one is different in many ways, but so I'm talking from Denver, Colorado, and I belong to a crew that formed here. And we have, it's amazing what we've gotten done three hour in three hours. That's how long our meetings are just once a quarter. And there's really good, you know, it's as much as you put into it is as much as you're going to get out of it, like anything. But um, people have put out there their audacious goals, you know, anything from there's always somebody who's got a book in them that they want to write or they want to ask for a raise at work or those kinds of things. And then sometimes we talk about personal things. It's whatever's on our minds at the time. I will say I've had a very, very 
positive experience, nothing but I feel like love and enthusiasm and energy for lifting each other up. I will also say that I get asked the question of why are women so mean to each other? Why do women knock each other down or not always support one another? Um, and how can we change that? So I thought there was probably nobody better to ask than you. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, sure. Um, it's a very common question, actually, that I get. Um, I have a number of different responses, depending upon who's in the room and who I'm talking to. Um, one of my responses has to do with our own perception. So I try to remind people that women are half of the population. <laughs> that oftentimes the behavior that people are citing. So if I said, well, why would you think that? In what context have you seen women like be mean? Or usually it's in the work, women will cite the workplace and some like queen bee syndrome or women not supporting one another. Um, and, you know, I try to remind people that women are often underrepresented in the workplace, um, especially in terms of leadership that often any underrepresented group in the workplace, whatever one or two do, it amplifies and it kind of gives this impression that that is true across the board when it may not be. So in other words, there's lots of men that like stab each other in the back in the workplace, but we don't take that as an example of how all men stab each other in the back. But we often do that with women who are underrepresented. Sometimes we do the same thing with different dynamics with people of color in the workplace. So I try to kind of get people to pinpoint what is the behavior that you're noticing? Is it really true of all women or is it true of a select group of women in a certain environment? And are we just applying, you know, that as a bias or a stereotype against women? I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the idea that women should be collaborative, the idea that women should be nice to one another, the idea that women should be nurturing and caring is also laden with stereotypes um, about femininity, about what women should be, that um, oftentimes in contexts in which men behave more aggressively, they're not seen as not being nice. Or Whereas if a woman is aggressive or if she is very competitive, people will interpret that to mean that she's a mean girl or that she's the B word. So I, I, the first thing that I try to do is kind of encourage people to question their own stereotypes about what's really happening when they're observing that behavior and whether or not that's really a, half the population's problem problem or whether that might be the problem. And I also talk a lot with business leaders about the cultures that they create and the environments that they create that encourage that behavior, that reward that behavior. Because I actually believe that when you put women in a context in which part of the culture and the assumption is that women are going to support each other, and that's that's in part what I've tried to do with the crew. I've tried to disrupt right? The environments in which that's okay to do, that would be blasphemy in the crew for a woman not to support um, another woman. I think that also makes a difference. Um, have there been women in my life who have stabbed me in the back or been mean or been jealous or been vindictive? I'm sure there have been. In fact, I have girlfriends who could probably name those women and say, remember when she did such and such? But I have to tell you, honestly, I couldn't name them myself. Um, and I realized this years ago, I, I used to start off the, the responding to this question by saying that I'm the cumulative investment 
of a lot of women who have poured themselves into me. Um, and it's true, I would not be here if it weren't for Marie Wilson, if it weren't for Gloria Steinem, if it weren't for, you know, Christine Taylor, if it weren't, there's like so many women I could name that have taken the time to invest in Tiffany and I'm the product of that. So it's, but I know that it's a real experience for other women. Um, and I had one of my friends who was in the audience that day when I was speaking stand up and just like say to the whole crowd, okay, everybody, I just want you guys to know there have been women who have been mean to Tiffany. It's just that she has amnesia or something. She like never brings them up. She never mentions them. Um, but it happens. And I think the key is to keep it moving, to model the behavior that you would want to see, that you would want our girls to see, that you would want our daughters to see. Um, but I, I feel very strongly that women are meant to support one another. I grew up in a community, in, the, in a church community, where women were constantly having each other's back. My mom was the preacher's wife, and there were constantly women in our home. And I remember a very early conversation with a woman. The only thing I really took away from the conversation, I was probably nine or 10 years old, was that a woman should always have her own bank account because this woman apparently couldn't get out of her marriage because she didn't have her own bank account. But what I remember poignantly were all the other women in the church talking about how they were going to like do a collection for her and how they were going to support her because this was a terrible situation that she didn't have her own bank account um, and that she was in this really terrible marriage. So, you know, I, I believe it's possible. I'm trying to create a culture and a world in which it's second nature for women to support one another. And I think we need to do it now more than ever. Yeah, I love that. I'm just soaking, soaking all of that up. And um, I, I too, you know, I'm sure have experienced some of those things, but definitely I, I feel like in the last couple of years, as I have been going throughout my career, I have felt nothing but support. And I know that one of the things that I try to do is really consciously pay that forward and make sure that I go out of my way to reach out to somebody or um, share with them what's worked for me. And probably more so than I might have in the past. I might have thought in the past, well, they didn't really ask. But now I'll go, like I said to a friend last night, we were talking about all these other things and these other women had these great plans and she was quiet. And I turned to her and I said, you have that children's book you've been talking about for a long time. This is your year. And she was caught off guard and she's like, oh, I don't know about that. And But I just thought, I, if I had something inside of me, I'd want somebody to bring that out me and support me. So I try to consciously cultivate that. So sometimes when people ask me that, I say, I've really felt supported by other women and I know that I try to put that out there. So maybe it's just winds up being a reciprocal kind of experience. You know, yes, what, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, drop the ball is a result of a crew member doing for me what you did for your friend. You know, recently I had put forth my ambition to write a book, hadn't gotten around to doing it. And one of my crew members is a woman named Reshma Saujani. She founded a organization called Girls Who Code. And it was at her birthday party. She asked me every time I would see Reshma, she would say, what's going on with the book? And I remember snapping at her that day because I had kids. She didn't have kids. I was running another organization. I was like, listen, I just don't have time to write a book right now, but, but I'll get to it. And she, it was almost like she looked through me and she just she just says to me, Tiffany, I think that chapter one should be about why women don't have time to write books. Oh, <laughs> you're like, OK, I was I, like, I better write this book. Yes. And I want to say um, 
that Rejma's book, Brave Not Perfect, yes. I think is a must read for yes. anybody who has a daughter. Um, yes. I probably every woman. And then especially if you have a daughter, I can't say enough about Brave Not Perfect. I love that book. It's my mantra. Mm hmm. Yep. I, I, it, I just can't say enough about it. So between drop the ball and brave, not perfect. Um, there's, there's just so much wisdom there and so much vulnerability. And that was something I want to ask you about. I think, you know, when you tell stories and Rejma did the same thing too, where you're trying to give a message, but you're actually telling your own personal story along with it. And with you, you talked about your marriage, you talked about your kids, you talked about finances, your childhood. I mean, you really were quite vulnerable and open. I'm curious for you what that's felt like and did, have you ever had any regrets or um, are you happy that you've shared as much as you have? Yes, I'm very happy. You know, I, by the time I wrote Drop the Ball, I was already a drop the baller. The only incentive for me going back in time, and by the way, I went back in time specifically because I wanted to go back to a, a point in my life and career where I didn't have the financial resources to outsource a bunch of domestic labor. That was really important to me because I wanted women who were kind of stuck in the middle, didn't necessarily have money to just pay people to do things that they could understand how it could potentially be possible. Um, for me, there are never any regrets because I only tell stories in service of others. In fact, I only made Drop the Ball a memoir because I know how stubborn women are. <laughs> and if I made it a how-to book, they would like not finish it. Whereas if I made it a, a kind of dramatic story about me and I put characters in it and I, you know, then they would think that it was about me long enough before they kind of got the message that, oh, she's telling me that I need to drop the ball. So to me, that's what if you're someone who's here for others, all of your stories should be in service of others. And you put your lens on it so that it can be relatable so that you can have some authority, you know, in that you're telling your story, but your story should never be about you. No story I ever tell is about me. And by the way, 99% of the stories in Drop the Ball are stories of other women. You know, maybe in my story, the couch is blue, mm -hmm. but every, every woman who has a, who's straight, who has a husband, there's a, there's a sofa, a chair somewhere in the house. <laughs> Right. Okay. A remote and <laughs> so, a TV too. Yes. Yeah. And a TV. Right. And a remote control. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I so, love that. Yeah. I really want to punctuate that, um, that you only tell stories that are in service of others. I really, that's pretty powerful. I like that. Mm -hmm. Um, the last question I'm going to ask you, I could talk to you all morning, but, um, is what are some of the ways, since a lot of people listening are parents, what are some of the ways that you intentionally raise your children so that they also care about the advancement of, let's say, other girls? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So first, I really believe that 80% of parenting energy should be devoted to just being the kind of person you would want your kids to be. I, I really, truly do. I believe that they're watching us. So whatever it is that you want to teach your children, you have got to be that. Um, they will see through anything else. So the most powerful way that I teach my kids that advancing women and girls is important is by doing it myself. Uh, the second is 
I think it's really important to give your kids access to diverse groups of people who can also model whatever it is that you want to teach them. So in addition to me being a proponent of women's equality and women's advancement, I try to surround myself, my kids, with other people in our culture and family. They're just called aunties, even though they're basically mommy's friends. Um, but I, you know, I have one of my friends and crew members is an entrepreneur who founded an applesauce company, but she also, you know, is a HR executive. And like, I try to make sure that whenever she has an event, it's like, oh, can I bring my kids? Can I show them different things? I, you know, if my daughter was here, I'd be like, oh, you know, come here for a second. You have to see Miss Cheryl. She's really amazing. She, you know, she has this podcast. I, I try to give them access and then three, I try to explain when things go really wrong. Uh, and I try to stop in the moment and acknowledge it. Last night was a good example. We were at a, one of our neighborhood ice cream shops and we were so happy to be getting some ice cream. And there was a disgruntled customer who just became more and more irate and started saying things that were just really disgusting. Um, about a gentleman that worked there who's a member of the LGBT community. And it was just really, really sad and disgusting. He leaves. And as soon as he leaves, I just turn to my kids and I say, that is not okay. I said, mommy didn't say anything and the owner didn't say anything. None of us said anything because he was so volatile that we wanted to make sure we didn't inspire him to lash out in a, in maybe even a violent way. That's how volatile he was. You could observe that, but make it, I want it to be very clear that our silence is not an indicator of that being okay. Everyone is welcome in this community. We want diversity in our community. And what he had to say was completely unacceptable. And I think sometimes, especially now in this environment, with every tweet that goes out, you know, our kids get exposed to things and we, it starts to be normalized because we hear it so often. I think we have to keep stopping to say, what you just heard on the news, that is not okay. And I want you to know it's not okay for our family. It's not okay for our community. It's not okay for the world. And just because it's still on and we haven't turned it off doesn't mean <laughs> that it's not you know, okay. I think it's really important. Yeah. I love those nuggets. Those are really good parenting nuggets. And sometimes when people hear things like that, they're like, yeah, you know, I think I'm doing that. But I think the level of intention that you probably practice in terms of what events can I take my kids? Who can I surround them with? What conversations do I want them to hear? When do I want them to understand what's right and wrong? And I'm going to make it really clear. I think there is that you have to be present in order to have that level of intention and then delivery to your kids. So I love that you just said all of that because hopefully this is a reminder to anyone who's listening um, that, that anybody can do this. You just have to have the, that presence. Do you agree? Yes. Yeah. I, I agree. I, the one thing that I do want to say, because I imagine a lot of really busy working moms mm -hmm. <laughs> might be listening, mm -hmm. is that that's if you decide that those things represent what matters most to you and that you delivering those represent your highest and best use, right, as a parent. Because I do think it's important to figure out what matters most to you. And in relationship to my kids, what matters most to me is that my kids become conscious global citizens, that is more important to me than them going to an Ivy League school. It's more important to me than their grades. It's more important to me than so many other things that I that might be important to another parent. And so I have to engage my kids. My highest and best use is 
having meaningful conversations with my kids each and every day, no matter where I am in the world, whether it's over FaceTime or Skype or just over the phone. And so you hear me having these conversations, but keep in mind that that's part of what I've decided is my highest and best use as a mother. Um, I happen to do drop off this morning. Sometimes I don't do that. I completely bomb on reading the emails from the school. I mean, there's so many things that I drop the ball on. Mm -hmm. So it could be that that that's what matters most to you and having those conversations. But I highly encourage everyone to go through a process themselves of figuring out what matters most and what you should be doing as a parent to focus on that so that you don't feel guilty if you can't do a bunch of other stuff. Yep, I love that. Understanding what matters most, what are your values, and then living those, because we can't do everything, and no. we can't you know, bring home every single point every day, but if you're clear on your top two or three, what matters most kind of values, then I think it becomes a little easier to parent and to know when to have that conversation. So um, I love that. I wanna say, I wanna wrap up with, telling people that you really, you walk your talk. You have met with me kindly two times in person when I've come into New York. You have extended great advice to me. You once, I know I've told you this before, but one time um, Tiffany and I both are associated with this thought leadership group. And she just said to me, I hope you don't mind me sharing, you know, you're you should demand that you're on the homepage of this and you should, you should be. And she just sort of empowered me by just being emphatic about, you know, they, that my diversity and what I had to say mattered. And that was before my book came out also after my book came out. So I just really want to say that you are authentic. You really do totally walk your talk, which I really appreciate firsthand. And I think your book is a gift to the world along with your Tiffany's epiphany. So if people, (laughs) if they don't follow you, um, I love it. She does these recordings and your living room, right? Although it doesn't look like your living room. It's really pretty. And she just sort of like in two minutes, you just share wisdom, just like you have today. It's pretty much two minutes, right? Is that your goal? Yeah, yeah they're about two minutes. Yeah, they're like two minutes and they're all always awesome. They're always great epiphanies. So, um, and as far as the crew, where can people find the crew and how would you tell yes. them to go about that? They absolutely should go to findyourcrew.com. Um, it's spelled C-R-U. Um, apply and tell other people. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a um, really wonderful experience for me, and I agree. I don't know how else you really find that crew, and it's different from your friends, and it's different from a book club. It's different probably than anything you belong to because it's just it's it's to advance you, whatever that whatever's in your heart, whatever's on your mind. So there's no set agenda that it has to be any certain sort of advancement. So I'm a big fan. Thank you so much for what you give to the world. You are truly living your why and it's really inspiring to watch. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tiffany. Bye-bye.